Thinking about ethics is hard. I hope you had a nap this afternoon or at least some coffee before you came here. We are living in a crisis of ethics as a nation. A few weeks ago, I was having this conversation at a table on Wednesday night here at Woodruff Road, and I was relating how my seminary ethics textbook, I went back and checked, it was written in 1986, didn't even contain a word on any of the following issues. First of all, internet issues, because it didn't exist then. Pornography. And for the last 25 years, that has been the single largest issue I've repetitively dealt with with Christian men. It's a seventh commandment issue. My ethics textbook in seminary had not, not a word to say about artificial intelligence, which is bringing massive ethical dilemmas. But there are some issues which ought to be, for the Christian, especially the Protestant, ought to be cut and dried. For example, anything that's treated in the Ten Commandments. Because we understand that the moral law, the Ten Commandments, is eternally binding and relevant on all people in all places in all times. And by the way, let me just tell you what we will look at tonight. So you may want to reach back up and get your hymnal out of the rack and turn to page 958. Because there we're going to see what our confessional ethic is that we have had for, since 1647, we've had a confessional answer to this question. But even though Protestants have been, that's page 958, but even though Protestants have been incredibly clear on the Bible's teaching on the sanctity of truth now for over 500 years, the issue keeps returning. Each generation has to be retaught. In our exposition of the book of Joshua, we've come up against a historical narrative. And you need to recognize in Joshua 2 that this has been used to claim that it is permissible, even commendable, for a believer to lie. Now let me remind you how we got to Joshua chapter 2. It began with Israel in bondage in Egypt, multi-generational slavery. The Lord raises up a savior, redeemer, deliverer, Moses. And the Lord sends plagues upon Egypt until they will let Israel go. Israel's delivered on Passover night. They pass through the Red Sea as on dry land. Then as they go safely to Mount Sinai, there they meet with God. And God gives them the moral law. And in fact, the ninth word of the moral law is the answer to our ethical dilemma tonight. And then Israel, after they receive the moral law, they fail at the entryway to to Canaan. And they wander for 38 to 39 years. Moses dies and the leadership is handed off to Joshua. And then they have, as we open the book of Joshua, Joshua chapter 1, Israel's now at the same place there at the eastern gateway to Canaan. They are massed on the eastern side of the Jordan River, some 2 to 5 million strong. And Joshua now, as an 80-year-old man, much sadder but much wiser, sends two Israelite spies across the Jordan. They enter Jericho into Rahab's home and business. She runs a brothel. She's a prostitute. The king of Jericho sends his policemen. He hears they've come into his town. He sends the policemen to take them into custody for questioning. And when they knock at Rahab's door, this is key, she does not tell them the truth. About that, there can be no debate. The question is one of ethics and immediately arises. Was the statement you see, and I hope you have your Bible open now to Joshua 2, was this statement 
in Joshua 2, verse 4 and 5, was it wrong? Was it unlawful? Was it sin? Look at this very clear text. Joshua 2, verse 4 and 5. Then the woman took the two men and hid them. So she said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. It's not true. And it happened as the gate was being shut when it was dark that the men went out. That's not true. She knows better. Where the men went, I do not know. She does know where they went. They're on her roof right now. Pursue them quickly, for you may overtake them. All of this is deceit and a ruse. And so we have to ask the question. Last week we looked at Rahab's faith. Next week we'll look at Rahab's covenant and ours. But tonight I want to hone in on Rahab's ethics. Is Rahab to be blamed for lying on this occasion? Was the lie under these circumstances justifiable? And so what we're going to do is examine Rahab's actions, and we'll do so by carefully studying the Scripture, since we are told in 2 Timothy 3, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. Consider this sermon, Instruction in Righteousness. You need to hear ethical dilemmas addressed sermonically, especially this one. Now let me counsel as we begin. Let me counsel humility and not smugness. I'm quite sure that most of us would not have done nearly as well as Rahab did. Don't give in to self-righteousness here. Remember, you have a few advantages over Rahab. Rahab had no Bible. She had never sat under a sermon, no, not one. She had not stood at the foot of Mount Sinai and heard the audible voice of God thundering the moral law, especially the ninth commandment. All she knew of God, she had third hand, and she's acting on what little bit she heard. And add to this the suddenness with which she must speak. A knock comes on her door, and she's immediately put on the spot and asked ethical questions, questions which demand truth or lie. You and I face ethical decisions on an almost daily basis where we are tempted to shave the truth or tell what it seems to us at least we will say necessary lies. You'll hear things like this. You'll probably hear tomorrow. Well, I had to tell my boss, my boss I had a flat tire. He would dock my pay. Notice the, the statement there about necessity. I had to tell my boss I had a flat tire. Or you'll have somebody who is getting ready to walk into class, and they'll say, I had to tell the teacher the dog ate my homework because then I'd make a zero, and how can I get into Harvard with bad grades? There are Christians who hear our text, Joshua 2, and immediately decide that Rahab's lie was justifiable. And so they usually do that because they want their lies to be justifiable as well. We're going to think hard. We're going to think in a complex fashion. Perhaps you're not used to thinking very hard when you come and sit under the preaching of the word, but I hope you'll gird up your minds now and let's ask for the help of the Holy Spirit. Our Father, we pray that you would send the Holy Spirit in power to give us light and clarity, to remove all distractions. Lord, we don't want to just hear for understanding. We want to hear for transformation. And so as we hear, transform us into a holy church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. First thing I want to do is I want to give you the case for exonerating Rahab. And so you think, I'm being deceptive. I'm, I'm going to tell you the truth. I have no intention of exonerating Rahab. Let me say this right up front. What she did was wrong. And I hope to prove that. But I want to make the case. And the fact, the first fact of the case is Rahab lied. She didn't just equivocate. She didn't just conceal a little truth. She clearly did break the ninth commandment. 
She intentionally spoke a barefaced falsehood. Her words were not in accordance with the facts. When you look back at your text at Joshua 2, verse 4 and 5, they are unmistakably clear on that point. The two Israelite spies are on her property in that moment, but she says otherwise. Every interpreter must admit that, but some, indeed many, go on to say, well, Rahab is faultless because. What I want to do in your hearing is give you, first of all, the case for the lie. The explanation for it, even the justification for it, according to others. A few assertions that are made to justify Rahab's lie. The first is, well, it was justifiable, and you'll hear this often. It was justifiable because saving a life has a higher claim on us than telling the truth. These are folks who say there's a a hierarchy, a gradation in God's law, and some have higher claims than others. Now, let me go ahead and tell you, it is never lawful nor wise to pit one of God's moral laws against another one. And in this claim, what these people will tell you is the higher claim upon you is not truth, but mercy to save a life. Therefore, Rahab is not to be held culpable or morally liable since she was answering to a higher call. The greater good in this case is life-saving. That's the first premise. The second case that's made for the lie is Rahab's lie is nowhere explicitly condemned in the Bible. These folks will tell us, God doesn't seem to be too worried with finding fault for the lie, so Cora, why should you be concerned about it? Neither the genealogy passage in Matthew 1 verse 5, which mentions Rahab, says not a word about her lie, nor her inclusion in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11 says nothing about her lying, nor the the faith that works passage in James chapter 2 says anything about condemning her. No one in the New Testament explicitly condemns Rahab. A third case for the lie. Now, some of you might already say, and I'm a little bit worried at this point, some of you might be saying, yeah, I'm with you. This is a strong case for lying, Carl. Let me give you a few more arguments that I've even heard in talking to people who say her lie was justifiable. A third was, not only is Rahab not condemned by the New Testament, she's commended by God in both the Old and New Testament. In Joshua chapter 6, which I doubt that we'll ever get there into Joshua 6, but in Joshua 6, she's, she's commended, as she is in Hebrews 11 and James 2. These Rahab defenders will say her lie is why she's commended in Scripture. A fourth statement made to justify her lying. And now we're getting to the core of how moderns think. Carl, her lie was justifiable because she had no alternative. Rahab must either lie and save the spies or not lie and give them away and expose them to a certain death. And then there's the sloppy argument. We'll call it the pragmatic argument, the fifth argument. Carl, all I know is God blessed her. The results prove, Carl, I'm kind of a bottom line guy. You know, ends justify the means. And all I know is the results prove that God was pleased with her. The spies were saved. Her family was saved. She married into a wealthy, godly family. She becomes part of the genealogy of the Messiah and is greatly honored. All of this is proof that Rahab's lie was justified. These are the reasons, at least these five, there are more. They're not as weighty as these. Why moderns will say Rahab's lie was justifiable. Now let me critique this case. And again, I told you that ethical thinking is hard. Do you know how our country likes to do ethics? 
They like to go march in the street and hold up signs that have a, a pithy, usually profane statement and scream at the people who are on the other side of the protest line. And that is what counts for ethical reasoning. Rarely, if ever, will you hear the New York Times or the Washington Post or Fox or MSNBC have a reasoned, biblically-based... No, that's not true. You never hear that about ethics. What we're going to do is think hard now. I'm going to make critical comments about each of those five statements that I made to teach you discernment and how to take every thought captive to Christ and to think hard about ethics. Now, here's the major premise of all of those five that I just told you. The lie was justified. That's, that's the, the major premise on all five. The lie was justified. And so as a critique, as a historic Christian critique, we must conclude that Rahab's lie was not sinful or a violation of God's moral law. So say them. Does this mean, let's ask some basic questions as we begin. Does this mean that there are clear-cut cases of disobedience to one of the Ten Commandments that are not sinful? What then happens to the unchanging moral absolutes founded on the unchanging moral character of God? For we believe, as historic Protestants, that the moral law is just a reflection of God's character. <clears throat> if there are cases where the moral law can be violated and it not be sin, then the law is no longer universally binding in all situations on all men. And then we no longer have an absolute moral standard built upon the unchanging moral character of God, but only shifting sand of situational ethics. If Rahab's lies are not wrong, what do we do with the hundreds of didactic texts, like, for example, this one from Proverbs 12? Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. Or Proverbs 13, the righteous man hates all falsehood. Or Psalm 15, Lord, who may dwell in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? He who walks uprightly and speaks the truth. If we say that a lie is ever right, aren't we saying that the moral law is changeable? And God's character from whence comes the law may be changeable also? I suppose these folks, these critics would say, well, Carl, most of the time God hates lying. But in certain situations, he actually approves of the lie. And they're probably thinking of the lie they told this morning. I think of the man who, standing inside these doors several years ago, told me it was okay to lie to the IRS because they're thieving scoundrels. Well, where will such an ethic lead? What does this say about the universal character of God's law? And so let me answer those first five cases that were made for the lie. The first argument was saving a life has a higher claim than telling the truth. Now what this sounds like, if you, if you went to a Catholic school or if you've studied Roman Catholic ethics at all, this is what is known as Jesuit casuistry. Casuistry simply means handling moral cases. The Jesuits were the classic Roman Catholic popularizers of the end justifies the means. Is lying right to save a life? The Jesuits would say yes. And so what I want you to do now is when you're going to have to really roll up your sleeves and go to work. Look back at Genesis 12, and we're going to look at the text of Scripture. Genesis 12, and we're going to look at some of the hard cases. There are, it turned out to actually not be so hard. 
of lies. Genesis 12, pick up the narrative at verse 10. We read in Genesis 12, 10, Now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to dwell there, for the famine was severe in the land. And it came to pass, when he was close to entering Egypt, that he said to Sarai, his wife, Indeed, I know that you're a woman of beautiful countenance. Therefore, it will happen when the Egyptians see you that they will say, This is his wife, and they will kill me, but they'll let you live. Please say that you are my sister, that it may be well with me for your sake, and that I may live because of you. So, let's ask, does anyone want to say that this lie to protect a life is justified? Well, it exposed Abraham's wife to adultery. It brought plagues on Pharaoh's house. We quickly find in verse 17. And every ethical writer that you'll read say this action is simply a lack of trust in God's providence and care. Now the sin of lying from this moment on after Genesis 12 becomes the family trademark of the Abraham family. He's masterful at it. His son Isaac is better. His grandson Jacob is known for his lies and his great-grandsons are world-class liars. But Abraham doesn't stop there. Look at Genesis 20 with me. Genesis 20, we will see that Abraham is a habitual liar. And this, by the way, is one of the problems I want to point out with those who justify lies. Is one lie justified becomes habitual. Genesis 20, verse 1, we read, Abraham journeyed from there to the south and dwelt between Kadesh and Shur and stayed in Gerar. Now Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. Wow, that's gotten easy to do, hasn't it? And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sinned and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Indeed, you're a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Well, under these circumstances, is lying justifiable? Look down at verse 9. Abimelech doesn't think, think so. He rebukes Abraham for the lie. This is a lost Gentile. And look what he says in verse 9. What have you done to us? How have I offended you that you brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin? You've done deeds to me that ought not to be done. That's pretty low when a lost Gentile is rebuking you for unethical behavior. And the answer, of course, was Abraham didn't need to lie. God was taking care of him by supernatural intervention. Abraham makes a weak argument justifying. Look at his argument to justify his lies in verse 11. Because I thought, surely the fear of God is not in this place, and they'll kill me on account of my wife. Like Abraham, listen carefully, Rahab did not trust in the providence of God. She thought all things depended on her and the cleverness of her speech. Second argument that was made a moment ago, nowhere is Rahab condemned for her lie. Well, right now you ought to be in Genesis 20 in your Bible, just look across your, the page at, at Genesis 19. And in Genesis 19, beginning in verse 30, if it weren't the word of God, I would be embarrassed to read the text. Because beginning in verse 30 in Genesis 19, we have Lot engaging in the most wicked and perverse of activities, incest. Now, what I want to point out to you is it's not condemned there, nor anywhere else in Scripture. So on that basis, are we to argue that incest is justifiable? God forbid. In another example, 
In Genesis 18, if you just turn back one page, Sarah is guilty of unbelief and lying to the angelic visitors when they come to her house. Look at Genesis 18, verse 10 and following. After they make great promises, these angelic visitors to Sarah, we read in verse 12, Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I've grown old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I surely bear a child since I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord at the appointed time? I will return to you according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh. Well, she's lying. She's guilty of unbelief and lying. And what you'll find shocks you. Neither is it explicitly condemned in the Old Testament or New. Therefore, according to this argument, are we to assume that every time a historical narrative records a violation of God's moral law and does not, in the context, explicitly condemn it, we are to assume from that silence that God approves of the behavior? That's a shaky principle of interpretation and ethics. I could cite dozens of other sins recorded in the scripture, and they are not condemned, and so many have reason from silence to their own destruction that these sins are therefore justifiable. The third argument that we made a moment ago. And I'm doing this so that you may be able to, I hope that you're, you're listening very carefully, perhaps even writing these down, because you'll have opportunities even in the next few days with your children, your spouse, your coworkers, to talk about the ethics of honesty. Listen to the third argument that was made. Rahab is even commended by God in the Old and New Testament. Yes, Rahab is commended. We'll see it in Joshua 6. We'll see it in Hebrews 11. In the Hall of Faith, we see it in James 2. So are we thereby saying that the only people in Scripture who get the commendation of God are perfectly sinless people? No. Listen to this amazing commendation. In Genesis 19, Lot's house is surrounded by homosexual men who want to assault his guests, his angelic guests. And so Lot offers up his daughters to them in Genesis 19. And you're thinking, boy, when the New Testament comes with the clarity of ethics, Lot is going to get it. Listen to how Scripture speaks of Lot in 2 Peter 2. Here's the Lord's summary of Lot's life. God delivered righteous Lot, who was approved Oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked, for that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Not one thing is said about the fact that Lot was willing on that occasion in Genesis 19 to give his two daughters to Sodomites to allow them to be raped. The only thing the New Testament says about Lot is he was a righteous man, that he hated the terrible sensuality in Sodom, that he was oppressed by it and weighed down by it. He's commended. The analogy, Rahab is commended. In Hebrews 11, James 2, so is Lot. So their sins must be okay, right? No. Poor reasoning. Does Peter condone Lot's offer of his daughters or his incest? God forbid. Make this careful distinction. The life of Lot, the life of Sarah, the life of Rahab is seen as a whole. So when the biblical author sums it up, they cite the pattern and trajectory of their lives and they commend them. Listen to John Calvin's discussion on this very text. 
As to Rahab's lie, it was not free from taint. For those who hold to the so-called dutiful lies, Calvin says, I'm thinking of Rome here, to be wholly excusable, they are not considering how precious truth is in the sight of God. Therefore, for although our purpose even be to assist our brethren, it is never lawful to lie because that cannot be right, which is contrary to the nature of God, and God is truth. The fourth case that was made for the justifiable lie. This is the one you probably heard the most in your college ethics class. Rahab had no alternative. This is the influence of situational ethics for the last 60 years or so, beginning with Joseph Fletcher. Now this critique, Rahab had no alternative, this critique presumes too much concerning God's providence. This is what's called the fallacy of false alternatives. We were in Las Vegas and uh, we had a man who started being gone on Sundays. And so I called him and he came by and he said, yeah, I'm, I'm working on Sundays now. I said, you can't do that. Fourth commandment issue. And he said, Carl, I've got to work on Sundays or starve. I said, well, this is logic 101. Fallacy of false alternatives. You have other options than just starving in terms of working on the Lord's Day. There are all kinds of employers who will employ you Monday to Friday or Monday to Saturday. But he, he insisted, no, the only two alternatives were work on Sunday or starve. Well, fallacy of false alternatives. Rahab had other alternatives. Think of just a few of those. Rahab could have stalled for time. She could have sent someone else to the door. She could have sent the Israelites over the wall in the meantime. The text said it was already dark. She could have simply told the guards where the spies were and prayed for the Lord to bind, blind the guards. Do you know how many times that happened, for example, in World War II in the Netherlands? When the Nazis would come knocking at the door and say, are you hiding Jews here? And the very ethical Dutch Reformed folks would say, yes, we are. And then they would pray for the Lord to blind the guards. I can't even think of all the possible alternatives, none of which would have required a lie. But the bottom line ethically is this. Right now, if you're still unpersuaded, let's think about this one, which holds most sway right now in the ethical discussions in our land. Rahab had no alternative. That itself is incredibly false. Listen to the principal ethical counsel of the New Testament. When you're thinking, I have to lie, whether it's to my boss or my wife or my kids or my neighbor, I am in a position where I cannot tell the truth. Listen to the premier counsel on truth and ethics from the New Testament. No temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to man. And God is faithful. Listen carefully and dig your fingernails in tight here. God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape. Do you hear what the scripture is saying, what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 10? He's saying, Rahab and you and anyone else who thinks, I'm, I'm boxed in here, Carl, I have to lie. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, no, you don't. There is always a way of escape. We are promised a holy path out of temptation. This is a roadblock to those who say, well, she just had to lie. No, she didn't. On the authority of Scripture, I can tell you that in every ethical situation, there is a path that refrains from lying. God never puts you in a place where you must sin. 
The fifth argument that we heard a moment ago is the pragmatic argument. Carl, I'm a bottom line guy. All I know is, is that God blessed her. She marries. She becomes the ancestor of the Messiah. What she did had to be right because God blessed her. Well, God blessed Abraham, and we've seen his sin of lying. God blessed Jacob, and he was a liar. The lies are not the reason for God's blessing. The Lord blessed in spite of lies, not because of them. The pragmatist says, Rahab had to do evil so good may come. Paul critiques that in Romans 3. And he says, those who say this, their condemnation is just. We may never do evil that good may come. Now, in the establishment of ethics, we have to employ some basic hermeneutical principles. And I I want to give you a little bit more background to how we come at any ethical issue. When you're doing ethics, and perhaps you've never thought about, well, how do I even approach an ethical issue? Let me give you a few guidelines and principles for any ethical issue. First of all, clear texts are to be preferred over unclear texts. Listen to what our confession says. The infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself, and therefore whenever there's a question about the true and full sense of any Scripture, which is not manifold but one, it must be searched and known by other places that speak more clearly. Which is clearer, Joshua 2 or 1 Corinthians 10.13? 1 Corinthians 10.13 tells us, no, you don't have to lie. There's a way of escape. And so we need to, to go to clearer text to interpret texts like Joshua 2. A second principle for doing ethics. Didactic passages are to be preferred to narrative passages for the establishment of doctrines and practice. For the principal aim of didactic passages, like 1 Corinthians 10.13, is to teach doctrine, while the principal aim of narrative passages is to teach history. So since there are abundant didactic passages telling us not to lie, and none telling us to lie, we can be very clear on the ethics of truth. And then another principle for understanding ethics. In the establishment of ethical principles, we must always carefully listen to the last 2,000 years of the church. By the way, the nail in the coffin on this issue was driven in January of 395 A.D. In January of 395 A.D., Augustine released his classic book called De Mendatio. For those of you who don't know your Latin, that means on lying. And Augustine does a brilliant takedown because the issues were the exact same then as they are now, 1,600 years later. And Augustine lays out the eight types of lies. And then at the close of this, he says, but whoever thinks there is any sort of lie that is not sin is deceiving himself most wickedly. Well, to those who say lying is permissible, and there are some even in this room tonight who still say, not buying it, Carl, I am so bound up in justifiable lies. To those who say lying is permissible, let me ask you a few questions. Tell me who, to whom you may lie. Civil magistrates, elders, Unbelievers only, some Christians, superiors, equals, inferiors, I've heard the justification for all of them. Under what circumstances may you lie? Is the choice to lie a privatized judgment or is this something that your wife knows about? Is it something you should, should go and consult with your elders about? And then you should know as well as a principle 
recognize that we have a public theology on all ethical matters. I told you several minutes ago to look at page 958 and 959. I want you to notice our larger catechism, which has the most extensive ethical discussion about what lying is and why it is wrong that we have had as Presbyterians since 1647. This, by the way, is what every one of your elders, deacons, and pastors subscribe to. And so notice in question 144, I hope you're looking at it there on page 958, what are the duties required by the ninth commandment? If you look down about a third of the way, it says, appearing and standing for the truth and from the heart, sincerely, freely, clearly, and fully speaking the truth and only the truth in matters of judgment and justice and in all other things whatsoever. I think it's pretty clear what we as Reformed and Presbyterian people think about the truth. It requires the never deviating from the absolute facts. But then, just in case you weren't convinced, look at the next question, question 145. What are the sins forbidden in the ninth commandment? The sins forbidden in the ninth commandment are all prejudicing the truth, a line down giving false evidence, a few more lines down concealing the truth, a few more lines down speaking untruth and lying. And so what you need to recognize is if you still choose to hold on to the view of the justifiable lie. You're going completely counter to the moral law, to 1 Corinthians 10, which says there's never a case where you have to lie. You're going counter to the historic teaching of the church, going back as far as Augustine. You're going against the confession of the church. How else do we apply this to us tonight? Let me tell you why the falls of believers are recorded for us in Scripture. The falls of believers, such as Rahab, who can barely even be called a believer. She's the newest of believers, perhaps converted for two weeks, three maybe. But her fall, like the other falls of believers, are given to us as warnings. They are not examples for us to imitate but danger signals to heed and use as a spur to prayer because you and I are men and women of like passions. Sin remains in us after regeneration. Don't be self-righteous and say, I would have done so much better than Rahab. Instead, pray, Lord, I am just like her. Help me. I need to take heed lest I fall. And that segues to an additional application. This shows us how we have need to daily pray the last petition of the Lord's Prayer. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Show me the way of escape day by day, Lord. But this also (coughs) shows us how we must exalt the Lord who can even work our disobedience together for a good end. Romans 8 tells us, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. And what this teaches us, it doesn't justify our evil. Our sins are our sins. They're damnable. But our God is so astounding and so sovereign and so omniscient that he can even take our failings, our lies, and he can weave them together into a beautiful tapestry and bring about good. Praise be to our sovereign God. Let's pray together. Our Father, we ask that you would sharpen our ethical sense to a razor's edge, 
that we would love truth and righteousness, and that our lips may be found being guarded in what we say and how we say it. Lord, we recognize that we are prone to wander. We are prone to justify all our sins. And so, Lord, we ask that you would keep us from that and be reminded day by day that you will provide the way of escape in temptation. You will provide the open door for us to speak the truth and thus glorify you. We pray.